Mormon Stories Podcast depends entirely upon the voluntary contributions of you, its listeners. To keep Mormon Stories alive, please consider donating today at mormonstories.org. To make a donation to Mormon Stories, just click on the Make a Donation button at the top right of the mormonstories.org website. Thank you for listening. You are listening to Part 2 of a conversation with Kent Larson about the recent acquisition of Siegel Book and Tapes by Deseret Book. So your your concern is bottom line is culture is important and the church has chosen they're not going to they're not going to be the supportive organization. In a lot of ways, I think that's a good thing because um, if the church was the one doing all the supporting, then I think there would be a an inherent feeling or need that they should try to control all this cultural outpouring, Um, and there'd be, as a result, less diversity and, um, and, and controversy about things that shouldn't be controversial, you know? <laughs> whether, well, that, whether or not, you know, whether or not you can sing Mormon modern music as a Mormon choir or not might be an issue where it isn't now. Right. So this reminds me of history repeating itself a tiny bit. As I, as I read the book uh, Adventures of a Church Historian by Leonard Arrington, um, some apostles in the late 1960s and early 70s, especially as a result of Fawn Brody's book, No Man Knows My History, recognized that we were getting our, our lunch eaten by secular historians that were not painting Mormonism in a favorable light. So they asked Leonard Arrington to come and head up a church uh, history headquarters where he then, by the church's support, starts commissioning uh, new li- literature, history, um, to to try and deal with the history in a credible way, but also in a, in a way that doesn't destroy faith. And most right. people who have, you know, Leonard Arrington, as he accounts the story, and those who have sort of analyzed it, acknowledge that at some point the brethren were observing the results of, of the history that was being created, the books that were being published, the articles that were being published. They decided that it was causing people to doubt and question their faith and their commitment to the church. And so by early 1982, you have the department being dismantled, the access to the church archives being uh, restricted to these historians, and eventually these guys all being sent to BYU. And some could argue, look, yeah, when it comes to music, okay, uh, the church can support music because you're singing hymns mostly and it's kind of innocuous. But once you start getting into film and literature, you're dealing with stuff that could that could really jeopardize faith and challenge people's testimonies, make them aware of things they otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to, and and cause them to come to church less, pay less tithing, be less committed to their families, whatever. That from the church's perspective, maybe th- it requires a monopoly so that they can make sure that these uh, these sensitive, fragile, vulnerable testimonies can be protected. So you know, what if what if a culture is is good for the members from a humanities perspective, but bad for the members or the church overall from a faith-slash-commitment-devotion perspective? I don't know. I tend to think not. Um, uh, let me go back to this, and maybe this is a cop-out, and maybe not, uh, but Joseph Smith said, Teach them correct principles, and they'll govern themselves. And um, I don't know. I don't know how how I feel about that completely. I I, in some senses, I think that uh, 
that it's possible that um, that the uh, the church maybe has swung a little bit too far the other way in in taking Arrington out of the position and trying to um, you know, to stop that that whole period of, of time. Um, I also think that I'm not. I think also it's a, a question of exactly what you expect out of people. Let me put it this way. If if a member of the church studies history and comes up with an idea that explains what happened in history, and uh, he's going to start writing a book about it. And if the church doesn't publish it, or this monopoly that you're you're talking about doesn't publish it, What's this person going to do? Is he going to not publish it? Is he going to stop just because that monopoly won't publish it? Um, I think not. I think he's likely to go outside the church and publish it anyway. Mm-hmm. And and then you have a question of uh, what I call share of voice. Who in the public's mind is, for want of a better term, shouting the loudest? It's got the, the most presence in talking about the issue and advertising about the issue and discussing the issue. Uh, I don't think the church can hope, not in today's world, to control and let people only hear its voice, and the members only hear its voice. And then there's the issue of non-members who are going to hear this, this voice anyway. You've got to get the message out there. And if, if, if you don't bring the appropriate and the, the ones that are are talking about things the way that you, you're comfortable with inside and let them publish. If you push them out and you push other people out, you're just going to make there be more voice on the other side. I'm not sure if this really helps. No, if, if, I can, if I can give you a parallel, uh, Greg Otterson, I believe is his name, is the head of Church PR. Is that his name, Greg? Or Michael Could Otterson? Anyway, this this Otterson guy recently struck a deal with the Washington Post where he would blog um, about, you know, Christianity and spirituality issues, etc. And I just just died when I found that out because, as expected, as soon as he starts publishing things um, on the Washington Post blog, who is it that flocks to the blog to ask him really hard, disturbing, uh, controversial questions? It's all these disaffected Mormons, or as they call it in the internet world, the Demu, the disaffected Mormon underground, they swamp and flock to his site, and two out of three comments on his blog postings are from very angry, disgruntled, highly controversial, disaffected Mormons. And this happens, um, you know, there's a blog site called LDSCIO.org um, where comments get made there. And just uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, BYU, uh, a blog at BYU affiliated with the business school started requesting business proposals from uh, young uh, aspiring LDS entrepreneurs about how to build a positive LDS influence on the internet um, from almost a marketing sort of management consultant perspective. And they had to take down that blog post and shut it down because 40 comments ensued from, again, these disaffected, angry people who, as you described, have been pushed out. And the volume uh, uh, and the noise ratio of these people to the faithful was overwhelmingly skewed towards the disaffected. So, so yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I totally 
buy what you're saying there. We're the, creating. The is, is the word gets out. I mean, these things get out anyway. And if you don't talk about them, take the stuff that Richard Bushman talks about in Rough Stone Rolling. Okay, all of the facts that he talks about are virtually all of them. They've been out there already. The, those disaffected members and non-members that don't know anything about the church at all, other than what they hear from disaffected members, which are plenty, they know all about these things. Okay, right. they're all over the place. Okay, right. and and who's out there that's talking and showing our side of the story? No one. Why? Because we have these cumbersome processes where everything's got to be approved by the central church, and we won't let people talk and discuss things. I was in the shower the other day, and it occurred to me, you know, the pro- one of the problems with the the uh, church's unit websites for the the wards and stakes um, is that only members can see them. <laughs> right. Well, if any members can see them, then we've lost this positive view of what goes on in a normal Mormon ward. People don't know what the norm is for us. Okay, right. it's not there. It's disappeared. It's, it's behind the firewall. Um, and the worst part of it is, if if your if your ward, I mean, for, let me give you an example. Our stake last um, last month hold, held as it has every year for many years its annual Messiah sing-in. Okay, where you go in and sing the Messiah. There are tons of people in New York love classical music, love the Messiah, would come to our chapel and sing with us. Okay. Okay. How are we supposed to publicize and let them know? That's, those unit websites certainly don't help us. Okay? Sure, sure. The way we're supposed to do it is we're supposed to go to the local LDS Church uh, Public Relations Committee, and they're supposed to get the word out. And they don't? Well, and they but don't? The, end, the individual members of a ward and stake, uh, there's no website that goes up where we can say, you know, send out an email to all our friends saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. Here, here's where you can find out about it. The yeah. mechanism is not there. Right. So, so I, I also just have to interject. I think your idea, I do think that the social and the cultural component of Mormonism is huge. And you, you said to me before we started this podcast, and I think you mentioned it earlier on as well, that the stronger the culture, the stronger the members' devotions to the church. If you weaken if you and look- neuter the culture then you, you lose members much more rapidly than you do by disaffection through knowing some history facts. If you look at activity rates around the world among members of the Church, it bears it out. In the Inner Mountain West is where you have the higher activity rates, and as you get farther away from the Inner Mountain West and farther away from the center of the culture, those activity rates go downhill until where you get places like you know, South America or um, you know, Africa or... <laughs> or the Far East, where activity rates traditionally get down in the 20% range. And if you've been in a, a, on, served a mission in any of those kind of places, you also may have gone to some of the weakest and most remote branches in those particular areas, and you find that you have 95-plus percent inactivity rates in those weak little branches. Why? Because there's no convivality that's going on. People aren't with other people. There's no social aspect going on in what they're doing. Right. Um, nothing for them to come to church for other than the, the worship service. But this brings up a real big dilemma that I know you're going to be sensitive to. I, I have a, a cousin who works in the correlation department at the church. No, in the in the editing uh, 
portion of the church. And, you know, one of the prime drivers of correlation necessarily hasn't been a concern about controversial historical topics. It's been trying to create a manual that will strip out all the cultural imperialism of U.S.-centric, American-centric sort of culture and making it so that it can be translated and used worldwide. Well, if we're talking about trying to grow culture that's American-based and then push that into Latin America and Asia and Africa, what about the concerns of cultural imperialism and, and stripping the people of their own native cultures as they try and uh, you know, assimilate into our culture? Do you have any thoughts about that? Because I really do believe that in many ways the church it means well. They want to strip right. out that, make it so that it's easily convertible to all these different countries, and, and also respect the local cultures and not try and swamp them with ours and say, you always have to wear a white shirt and a tie and you always have to sing Janice Cat Perry songs, etc. Absolutely. And it, it's a balancing act. Um, part of it's part of it's just the way things go. I mean, we send missionaries from North America to, to some of these remote areas of the world, and the only thing those missionaries know is how it was done at home. And so they unconsciously, whether they want to or not, export North American culture to these to these people. No two ways about it. Right. And in some sense, there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, other, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe they need to have you know cultural cultural sensitivity training or better cultural sensitivity training for missionaries at the various MTCs around the world. So it's a complex issue. More, more importantly, yeah, it's 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 a topic that's got to be worked on um, and worked on at all levels of the church um uh, you know it it's a real problem it it is a real problem um I, in the book publishing world i've i've actually blogged on this issue um i'm i'm very disappointed with the way things have gone for spanish and portuguese the two largest languages in the church uh, um besides english and the two where there obviously ought to be publishing going on um just because of the vast numbers of people right um you know, it seems to me part of part of the assumption here with with language is exactly the assumption that we have that everything has to be translated for them, and it's just garbage. It's not true. We need, if anything, the people in Spanish and Portuguese speaking countries to be writing their own materials. And hey, if it's good, let's translate it to English then. Hmm. It makes better sense to do it that way economically, and it makes better sense culturally. Both of those things, if we could get that stuff happening and jump-started, if we had publishers and um, bookstores in these foreign countries, and they do exist to a degree, it's happening a little bit, just not to where anybody knows. Um, if it was happening enough, um, I think activity rates would go up. I think people would be more members of the church. And I think our culture here in the United States would benefit by from an influx of diverse and interesting new ways of exploring and understanding um, our wonderful culture and our wonderful gospel. It, what, what you represent is a, is a pretty significant pendulum swing, because as I understand it, before correlation, before the 50s and 60s, things were autonomous, things were independent. Latin America came up with its own hymnal, maybe. And uh, and things were encouraged to be local and grassroots, but it was decided that that was a problem, that we needed standardization, we needed to make it easy to duplicate, and so we correlated. 
And now what you're saying is that it might it might behoove the church to consider a pendulum swing a little bit back in the other direction to allow more local produced uh, materials and and autonomy on the local level. I had a call earlier today from a woman who represents a uh, bookstore in Chile that's trying to get um, Spanish-language materials uh, from here in the United States. And I, I've, uh, I have some of that stuff for sale on my website on mormonpavilion.com, um, uh, books from the, uh, the first LDS publishing uh, imprint in Spanish, Zarahemla, Editorial Zarahemla. Um, and I don't, well, so that's the reason she called me. And in our discussion, you know, we talked about this issue, and people there in Chile just don't have it quite in their minds that they could write their own stuff. And the publishing they're doing is, to the small extent that they're doing any publishing down there at all, is translations from English of different materials put out by the church. Um, it would be wonderful. But the reason that the interesting thing that that's here is the reason that she said that they're doing this, and the reason they're doing it is because the translation in Salt Lake isn't happening fast enough. Huh. It seemed to me, wouldn't it be better to go ahead and give these people the English, the English copies of this of this material as soon as possible, let them do the translation, approve it in Salt Lake, have somebody that's good go through it and approve it. Okay, yeah, yeah. and you spend less time and money in Salt Lake, spend more time, maybe money in 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 Chile, and have something that's localized for Chile, but still correlated. Sure. Okay, I, I'd also draw a little bit of a line between the church itself and the stuff that's doctrinally important, and the broader elements of culture. Yeah, I'm I'm all for having novels and um, and plays and everything written in Chile. I think that would be great. I'm not certain that I want general conference addresses written in Chile. Okay? <laughs> I think those do need to be correlated. Right. There is a balance that needs to go there, and yeah, perhaps the church itself has put the, put the pendulum the, the, too far, but I, I would argue that more of it is that our culture as a whole hasn't quite reached it so that the people there can develop their own pol- uh, culture and pull the pendulum more towards them for cultural items that are not part of the right. doctrine of the church. Right. So just to, just to sort of close on this point, and then we'd, I'd love to move back just to the implications on the publishing industry and the church, but, you know, it reminds me a lot of the Internet. You know, Internet 1.0 was very much a poll model. When people got out their browsers, they expected to consume information, to pull it down. Uh, you know, as you know, Time Magazine made us people of the year because now the Internet, the Web 2.0, is all about blogs and podcasts where people become not only the consumers of consolidated, you know, media company provided content, but they also now become the producers of the content. Right. And um, it seems like when it comes to non-doctrine related culture, we used to allow a lot of local, locally produced user created stuff Somehow that's been neutered along the way, and what you're calling for is sort of a culture 2.0 uh, within Mormonism, uh, or maybe 3.0, where we revert back to uh, you know user member generated cultural content. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So let's 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 close by talking about um, you know what the implications of this uh, acquisition might be. How does this affect independent bookstores? How does it affect the content? Do you think it's going to be a good thing? Are there any benefits or positive things you see to it? Do you see any negative things? What's the outlook uh, for this acquisition? Well, I don't see too many good things coming out of it. I mean, obviously, it has the potential of turning of turning a bit more money to the church, okay, over time. But and there may be some marginal improvement for current covenant authors who may see possibly higher royalty rates or things like that. It's also possible that um, this would give um, Desert Book and Siegel Book, their combined operations, the ability to open more stores, okay, because they'd have that much bigger financial resources. I, I tend to doubt that a lot of that's going to go on because the, what you see uh, from publishing mergers elsewhere and from uh, the efforts of other people, um, you know, what's happening in the, in the major main uh, publishing world, other, other acquisitions, is not that at all. The number of titles that in, after a merger tends to go down. We saw it in, when Desert Book purchased Bookcraft. The number of overall titles that were produced over the next few years, three or four years, went down. Desert Book is, you know, they're publishing, still publishing more than they did before the, the Bookcraft merger, but nowhere near as many as Bookcraft and Desert Book together were publishing just before the merger. Right. I, I can't see the same thing. And the same thing's going to happen with Covenant and Desert Books publishing operations. They may still maintain Covenant as a separate name and everything, as they have with Bookcraft, but they're going to find some schema for putting them in, and you know they'll decide that off in terms of future projects, all new authors are going to to go to you know of this particular genre are going to go to Covenant, and new authors of this particular genre are going to go to Desert Book. And Desert Book and Covenant are not going to compete for authors. That means when there's, you know, we, we know the capitalist line here, you know, when there's competition, the benefits accrue to the people that are selling that are, or the people that are buying. You get better stuff going on. Right. Um, the, the general public benefits. Because the, the two, two companies are combined, they don't have to give in, give as much to to the authors, and they don't have to give as much to the general public. Um, one of the reasons I kind of doubt that the overall number of stores will go up, at least not in the short run, um, is simply they're so dominant now in the market. Something like, you know, sixty, seventy-five percent of the stores. I mean, it could easily be seventy-five percent of all retail sales of LDS products at least among, or, or all retail sales made at LDS stores. Um, right. It, it's so dominant that you just wonder, how hard do they really have to try? Who are they competing against that they have to really try to beat them? Um, it's, in general, I've looked at this acquisition, and, and one of the things that, in any kind of acquisition, from a business standpoint, you look at it and you go, okay, this is all fine and good to do this acquisition, but where in the acquisition is the synergy? Where is the thing that makes one plus one more than two? 
Right. Okay. That that produces something extra out of it. And my problem with this merger on the highest level is simply I don't see the advantage. Where's the synergy? Right. You know, if the, the, the amount of shelf space isn't going to go up. See, they basically have the same overall customer base, the two companies. So, you know, it doesn't mean that Desert Book products will now get to new customers that they wouldn't before, and it doesn't mean that Covenant and Siegel Books customer base will grow either. Okay. Right. It's the same people. Okay? Sure. Um, in fact, in a lot of places, you know, although they claim that the stores are separate and not going to and going to be managed separately and that they work on two different models are going to continue to work on two different models that is discounter and full service store there's still going to be a lot of markets where there is you know a desert books store you know uh, metaphorically on one side of the street and a, a seagull bookstore on the other side of the street and um uh, Anybody, anybody that's a manager has to look at that and go, okay, in this situation, does it really make sense? Or could we do the same thing by, oh, let's combine them in the same building and make it half Seagull and half Desert Book. Hmm. And that way we can cut employees and we can still have the same kind of thing uh, going on with the two different models, but we can save all these costs. Right. Um, seems to me that eventually those kind of um, uh, that kind of analysis is going to work out and win out, um, and um, and the, actually the number of stores will will go down eventually. Sure. Okay. So, and as this happens, as the number of stores go down, as the fewer authors get published, our culture suffers. Uh, the amount of choice that consumer has consumers have will go down. The prices will go up. You know, less yeah. authors published means weaker culture. It means less, fewer ideas out there, fewer ways of looking at things, fewer enjoyable things to read. Um, that's that's the hurt. That's the problem. And and I what you know when you think about monopoly, and I know you're you're a big believer in capitalism. I I am too. One of the big questions about whether there's a monopoly is whether or not there are, you know large barriers to entry. Um, you know, if if you think that culture is good and the people want interesting books to read and thoughtful books to read and diverse books to read or, or music or whatever, you know, what's to keep, you know, a new seagull from springing up that can kind of do the same thing? Are, are the barriers to entry huge is the first part of my question. The barriers to entry are substantial, okay, in the retail end of it, in the stores. In the book publishing, I'm not concerned. There are lots of different book publishers, LDS books publishers, We've had, over the past five years, an explosion of LDS book publishers simply because of the impact of new technology. The Internet, e-books, print-on-demand, all of these technologies have made it extremely easy to get a new book published. Who are, some, who are some of these publishers? Book, but, who are some of these publishers, just for our listeners' sake? Uh, well, uh, it's, it runs the gamut. Everybody from Spring Creek, which is one of these new ones, there's a, a guy up in Idaho um, named Wind River Publishing. Um, oh, it seems like every time I turn around, there's another one I've heard of. There's a Parables Publishing that's uh, located, I believe, in Maryland. Uh, there's my own operations. There's, uh, what else? I remember, I can't remember the name. There's a person up in Boston. Um, 
And many of them are not just self-publishing their own little materials. They're publishing the works of, in fact, most of the ones I've mentioned are works of other people. You know, they're operating like a traditional publisher. Um, and to what extent are these... The technology's got to the point where you can do it in your spare time. Right. You really can. To what extent are these publishers right now carried at Siegel Books or Deseret uh, Books? Oh, uh, hardly at all. A part of the... There's kind of... There's no barrier to actually getting the book published. I mean, the barriers are almost gone. It, it literally can cost... To start up a, a, a new publisher can cost less than $1,000. And in some cases, if you really know what you're doing and where to cut costs, probably less than $250, okay? Wow. It's just nothing. Um, uh, and that's not only true in books. It's true in music. Not quite true in film, but... You know, how, how, are these groups, how are these groups marketing and how are they selling their books? That's really the problem. It's easy to start a publisher. What's, what's harder is to sell the books. And the difficulty you have is getting into the bookstores or getting to where you can sell the books. Now, the U.S. industry as a whole has made it quite easy to get a basic level of distribution done. If you go to most of the print-on-demand companies um, and the printers that, they, that service them have ways, so once you sign up your book with them, the book automatically shows up on Amazon.com. And, you know, in some cases, barnesandnoble.com and a host of other little Internet websites, okay? So you get a basic level of distribution. That, doesn't, that helps to a degree. People come across those books, okay? But it doesn't get you the kind of sales that a desert book could get with the same title um, because the vast majority of members of the church don't find out about it. And so the real hard part of publishing these days is not getting the book in print. It's the selling. It's the distribution of the book. So it sounds like what you're telling me is, yeah, there's a bunch of new publishers popping up, creating all these new books, but few people are buying and reading them. Uh, well, I would say the average the average sale per title, the number of copies sold per title is probably quite low um, and in the neighborhood of 100 or, or a few hundred wow. in many cases okay. um, a year instead of now, traditionally, before print-on-demand came along, um, a book really needed to sell, uh, you know, at least a thousand copies in its first year, or it was just a failure. It was not going to make money. Right. Um, uh, now, you know, if you can put it together yourself, and you don't pay, have to pay people a lot of editing fees and um, you know, time editing and time designing the book, and you know, upfront fees like that. Um, yeah, you can do a new book for as cheap as $100 or less um, if you know how to do it. Hmm, interesting. Um, so that, that can become profitable quite quickly if, you, if you're able to... It can become profitable quite quickly. And, and, and literally, you know, printing a book and running a book off of, you know, that has only cost you $100 to produce, um, you know, you, well, you have to sell 20, 25 copies before you break even, okay? Right. And then after that, you know, it's it's... The selling price, less your less your uh, your printing cost, and that's your money. You know, right? Um, so there's an opportunity there lower, with with the lower lower barriers to entry in terms of publishing. There is an opportunity here that people should be aware of. There is, but I qual again. I have to qualify it. Okay, it's about the selling, and yeah. it's about the marketing. Um, and in in that area, we're quite hobbled in a lot of senses. Um, Desert Book 
with and the the, mer- the acquisition of Siegel and Desert Book, you know, I don't know exactly how it'll me it'll shake out. They claim that they're going to keep the same organizations, which would mean you'd have separate buyers for Desert Book and Siegel. But again, I I wonder how long that's going to last. How long before somebody says, well, you know, we should have only one buyer for this kind particular kind of book instead of two. And Siegel Books Buyer and Desert Books Buyer should be the same person. And then when you're in that say, case, then, well, if you can't convince that person to buy your book and put it in stores, you know, in terms of the LDS market, you're dead. Right. Well, let me let me propose um, to you... A, the guy up at oh. Wind River Publishing, you know, in his he posted on, on MotleyVision.org this morning uh, saying that uh, he'd already had a situation where Desert Book refused to carry, carry one of his books um, because Desert Book had a similar title, and he claimed that, that the sales were 20% lower than he'd expected as, re, as a result. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, now, another way that the LDS world hobbles people is that there aren't ways of publicizing and advertising the books that we do do. Yeah. So if you're an independent uh, publisher and you can't get your book into Desert Book, you can get it onto Amazon, but how are you going to tell members of the church that it exists? What newspapers do you advertise in? What uh, magazines do you advertise in? You can't advertise in the Ensign or the Friend or any of those magazines. How do you let them know? The Internet? Well, you know, I'm, I've, there's a there's a, f- a phenomenon that I've I've discovered as I've gone through this, and that is that um, many members of the church um, don't use the internet for Mormon related stuff. Right. Sure. Um, it's too scary. Well, I disagree. I don't think it's necessarily too scary. In fact, I think most members don't find the internet particularly scary. Uh, they've worked out their ways of avoiding the, the content they don't like. Uh, I think it's just uh, compartmentalizing their lives. They they don't think of the Internet as the main source for going and finding things about Mormonism and, and for finding Mormon culture, and so they don't. Um, I should also add, I think this is the majority, the vast majority of members of the Church don't use the Internet to find out much about the church at all, or their their Mormon lives, they use it uh, maybe to to go to their um, local um, uh, LDS ward page. But even that, they don't do much. Um, I've participated from time to time on a on a, a list on the internet called LDS Clerks, which is a discussion for uh, clerks, uh, warden state clerks, and uh, the feeling I get from them is that. You know, 80 and 90 percent of the people in their ward, most of whom who have internet and access, don't use the ward web pages at all. Right. Um, I, I don't. From the from the volume of people that I see going to the blogernacle, um, I think that uh, you know we've got 90 percent of the members of the church that don't know the blogernacle even exists. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, email lists are few and far between, and, and the number of people participating there is very low. Look at it this way. I, there's over 5,000 wards and branches in the United States, um, and LDS Clerks maybe has 200 members. Okay, right. Where where is everybody? And clerks of all people, you know, they have internet access. They do. 
Right. We should have 2,500 members on LDS clerks, and there's 200. Sure. Well, I have, you know, I have two sort of questions I want to pose to you, and they're almost proposals as much as they are questions. But let me start with the first, and then I'll jump to the second. The first is, uh, let's take Rupert Murdoch in Fox News as an example for how we might approach this issue. Um, you know, before Fox News, there was a perception that there were only three networks for news, you know, ABC, CBS, the, the, the NBC, and maybe there was CNN and the consensus and NPR. And the consensus was that were all of them was that all of them were very liberal. Um, and so what Rupert Murdoch did quite masterfully with Roger Ailes or whoever it was, was create an alternative, fair and balanced, a conservative approach to news as a response to all these liberal outlets. And mm-hmm. so they ended up, you know, Fox News ended up doing quite well and becoming quite a significant player relatively quickly because they branded themselves as not the other guys. As you think about um, Richard Dutcher's experience in Mormon filmmaking, yeah, he was able to sort of grandfather Mormon filmmaking, but very quickly, you know, the schlocky, goofy, you know, Mormon cinema emerged that was, you know, fun, and I enjoyed a lot of it. But, you know, in a way, they sort of destroyed uh, Mormon cinema for, you know, the next few years because people now won't go see another one of these goofy, silly movies. And so I right. say to Richard Dutcher, you know, what if, what if you started presenting your movies and movies like yours as not traditional Mormon cinema and building a market for an alternative to what everyone has come to either ignore or hate. And so I'll propose that as well. You know, you know a lot of these independent publishers. You know a lot of these people who care about Mormon art and Mormon culture. You know, what if we banded together to form a a non-correlated uh, alternative to uh, Mormon culture and a bookstore that sort of tried to consolidate the needs of all these independent publishers into a, a non-Deseret book entity that could that could really push this stuff and market and brand itself in a consolidated way as the alternative to correlated, rigid, sometimes schlocky or kitschy Mormon art. Sounds great. I think it could it can happen. There's uh, there's some caveats and some some you know s- small problems with um, portions of what you said. I, I definitely think the cooperation ought to happen, and it, it, I don't believe it has yet. Um, I think that uh, I, I think there are kind of prototypical things like that that are happening. Um, you know, there are places to buy these kind of books. There are lots of publishers that are offering stuff that you know, are more alternatives than um, what Desert Book and Covenant and, and the mainstream are publishing. Um, that's starting to happen. It's easier to do in publishing, of course, than it is in film. With film, the problem is, is that budgets to make a good film run into the millions of dollars, and um, you run into the funding problem. Right. Okay? It's, yeah. it's hard to break in and do that. what you're saying, um, unless you're willing to, to make stuff with uh, fairly low production values. Right. Um, so, uh, books, books. I think it, it can and it and it should happen. Um, there needs to be more of it, and there needs to be cooperation. I think those things are would be excellent things to work on. Um, we we maybe ought to have a little uh, 
independent or literary uh, uh, publishers, Mormon Literary Publishers Association or something along those lines. Uh, I'd be a small, pretty small group at this point in time. We're talking, you know, no more than five publishers probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, yeah, it, it could could happen. In terms of, of, you know, offering an alternative to Desert Book as a place to sell books, I think some of the, some things are being tried. There's a lot of internet-based stuff, but again, you have the, the same kind of problems that you have with film. It takes a lot of money to open a bookstore, okay, in the neighborhood of hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it right and to to do it so that you could actually, um, you know, get the word out and make money. And I'd say of those hundreds of thousands uh, thousands of dollars, you'd spend at least half of it simply promoting that the bookstore is there. Right. Um, it's uh, bookstores are so much more expensive than people think that uh, and and that uh, and and starting and compared to starting a publishing company they're so much more expensive that um uh, it's really hard uh, on top of it there's a you have a big problem of the general trend in the United States and in the LDS book market of um of independent bookstores going out of business sure the number of members of the LDSBA in 2004, was 190. I think the year before that was 200 and some. At one point, they had 260. They're now down to around 120. And this is a again an association. That's the with... number of retail stores and retail members that are stores. Okay. So how about not responding with brick and mortar, but responding on the internet with a consolidated, independent, you know, Mormon book? Um... I I think those um, something like that could work to a degree. I think you have a number of competing places that are trying to do that. Sunstone has its little internet store. Um, you know, my Mormon pavilion could, could fill that role and has some interesting stuff on it. Uh, there are a few others that are doing similar, um, similar projects uh, to very, you know, successful and not successful to varying degrees. Uh, uh, you know, it would cost still, still some money because you do need to try to stock some of these things, and that means you have to spend... Um, you know, uh, thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars, of uh, in investing in your initial stock. Um, so, could it happen? And should it happen? Yes. Um, it, it's maybe not as easy as as it might seem, but yeah, it could. So, Mormon it does Mormon Pavilion promote books that you don't publish? Then, yes. Okay. So, what is Mormon Pavilion? What are you trying to do with it? Mormon Pavilion. Originally, the idea was to build a, a, a brick-and-mortar store for the New York area. And then when I purchased and became, you know, I purchased this uh, uh, Portuguese language business, Lusa Brazilian Books, I inherited with it an already operating um, store, uh, internet store. And uh, at that point, I figured, well, I'll, I'll, I can mirror the website and do exactly the same thing that I do for the Lusa Brazilian Books, in the Mormon area, right. and it was a convenient way to to make sure I had an outlet for the books that I'm publishing and is distributing for other people. Um, and you know, of course, it's very easy to just simply at that point add a new title. It's not that hard. Right. The only real question is one of stock. So, um, so are, are you hoping to grow that into something? Of- I am hoping to grow it into something more. I would like it to eventually be you know, the LDS bookstore for the New York City area. Um, you know, I think 
like all bookstores these days, you need a strong uh, internet presence. One of the fortunate things I have with in Mormon Pavilion at, the, at this point in time is that the, the mechanics of the website are quite strong. Uh, they're solid. They work. It works well. And um, so you have a shopping you know, cart and a, you have a catalog. You have a catalog and a shopping cart and all, and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Okay. Absolutely. Well, maybe we need to promote it a little more. That is uh, mormonpavilion.com. Is that right? That's right. So, uh, but you don't, why do you limit it just to the New York area? Because you don't want to deal with fulfillment and stuff? I mean, why well, don't you no, say... I mean, I mean the brick and mortar store for the New York area. Um, I don't, I think that uh, building a chain of stores is, uh, a, would I say no to it? No, I wouldn't. But I think that I'd rather get a brick and mortar store in one place off the ground first before I even think about across the nation oh, or something like that. So you're thinking brick and mortar in New York then? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's inevitable. The church has grown here quite quite strongly, quite substantially. Uh, uh, you know, the the audiences, if not big enough now, it's getting close to big enough. Okay. And but, but there's like no... I, like I was the point I'm trying to make with all with the internet website part of it is these days, uh, independent stores almost have to have the internet website. It's um, you know one of probably the major reason why uh, uh, independent bookstores in general are going out of business is because they're getting be- beaten up from from Amazon.com and other stores, other internet stores. Yeah. And um, unless you have a, a competing presence where you can bring in sales from other places, um, you know. I don't see how you can survive. Um, uh, I think that uh, an internet press it helps brick and mortar stores sell. Sure. Well, let me ask you a final question and then let you wrap up or conclude however you wish. But there, there could it be that there's a bigger problem? Uh, you know that can be characterized by by Tom Kimball, a quote that he often likes to make. Tom Kimball likes to say, "If you ever want to hide something from a Mormon, can you finish the sentence?" I can't. No. He says, "If you ever want to hide something from a Mormon, put it in a book." And his yeah, well, okay. His sort of his sort of position is that Mormons don't read, and if they do read, they go to Desiree Book and buy Russell M. Nelson or Dallin H. Oaks's latest book or Gordon B. Hinckley's, you know, uh, you know, book. They certainly aren't going to read Catcher in the Rye or Grapes of Wrath or The Backslider or you know uh, books that are more substantive and meaningful. So there, there is, there's, there's sort of meet the customers where they are, and there's another business strategy, which is sort of create a market. Have you ever thought about how to get Mormons to read more and to care more about refined, elevated culture and ideas? Or is the church's desire to encourage centralization and correlation sort of um, kept, kept the Mormon culture on milk to the extent that they no longer want meat and and you don't have a you don't have a customer base that demands fine literature and that demands fine art because they're satisfied with the Sunday school manual and the latest uh, Art of Cap book and whatever comes out of of you know Temple Square and music in the spoken word. I you know I, I'm I'm going to have to say I really don't know in a lot of ways. <laughs> I really don't know. I I suspect that. Tom is both right and wrong. 
it, it easily could be that, that members of the Church don't read as much as, um, as others. But, you know, that's true in a lot of places around the world, and there's still book industries that exist. And it's true in a lot of places around, around the world, and interesting, thoughtful books still get published for those little markets. Um, I think it's more a matter of uh, what are we doing? I think the question we should be asking is more along the lines of what are we doing to expand and make available what we've got and the thoughtful materials that we have to a broader audience? Um, I think part of Tom's frustration is not just that Mormons don't read, but also that his company in particular has been, unfortunately in my view, thumbnailed and and positioned as being um, unfaithful to the church. So you're uh, you're um, actually a somewhat I think slight supporter. A lot of people of that when book? you say signature books, they go, "Oh, that's that publisher." of very questionable books that I shouldn't be reading. Right. And I, I suspect that a lot of what Tom is reacting to is that kind of problem. Um, he, they, they get slammed with it um, fairly successfully, uh, I think. Um, on the other hand, I do recognize that, you know, there's a, a kind of an anti-intellectualism that kind of goes through the church sometimes, um, that people don't want to dive into a lot of details in in many areas. I'm still positive, though. I think that there is enough people that do, and a growing market, even in that area, that, um, you know, that, that a, still a vibrant LDS book industry can grow and will grow eventually. In my view, the, the problem is in the LDS book industry is not the kinds of books, so much the kinds of books that we're publishing, but more one of the amount and the kinds of distribution that we have. If you look, if you go down the list of um, Desert Book and Siegel Books stores and where they're located, you can see the problem. They're located, in, for the most part, in the Internet and West a little bit in California. They go as far east as possibly St. Louis, and nothing east of the Mississippi. Do you know how many members of the church there are east of the Mississippi? Other than the D.C. Uh, store. Well, the D.C. store is not a desert bookstore. Oh, okay? right, right. Oh, okay. You know, um, you know um, and yes, there's independence in, in a lot of these places, yes. But you know how many areas there are that are not being met by some kind of brick-and-mortar store? Yes, we can have stores on the Internet, and yes, that can solve problems, uh, some of the problems. But again, you know how many areas of the church are effectively not being reached? Even English-speaking members, areas of the church that are effectively not being reached? You know, Australia and New Zealand have, you know, one and two members bookstores between them, perhaps. Right. Okay? New Zealand, until Chile came along, New Zealand had the highest proportion of its population that were members of the church, at least in terms of countries with at least a million in population. Right. New Zealand has a lot of members of the church there. Hmm. Okay? That's why you had the New Zealand temple there before the ones in, in Australia, and why the, they had the little um, high school that the church has owned there. 
you know. Then this isn't even getting back into the language issue. Right. Okay. A large part of the problem that we have gets down to one of distribution. How do we get and the books into the hands of the members and let them know that they exist? Sure. And a large part of the problem is our fuddy-duddy thinking. Mm. We assume that, um, you know, the only way to do this is to set up a brick-and-mortar store in that area and have everybody come to the store. Um, or we assume, well, we'll just do an Amazon.com and we put it all up on the Internet, and that's the only way for it to happen. I think we've got to broaden our thinking beyond that. We've got to come up with other ways. We've got to, you know, maybe we need to pay individual members to be representatives of, uh, you know, ex-publishing company or Mormon publishing companies in general and have them sell the books door-to-door to their neighbors or, you know, sell them from their home or just be representatives who can go to a, a country like, um, you know, Guatemala or Chile or some place where their the income levels are very low and where they can just simply help their neighbors who are illiterate or don't have Internet access or whatever get the books they want. Or how about that? They've got Internet access, so they're the distribution point. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to do things, and, you know, uh, the LDS industry in, in the whole is not exploring any of them. They're just not interested. They're so interested in their little Intermountain West area of distribution, and everything else doesn't seem to exist to them. Right. And, or how about the support and creation of book of book clubs to encourage uh, you know, little small communities to buy and read books and to review them and uh, provide feedback, etc.? If we sit down and think about it, there's a lot of ways to build readership and build a market, okay? Um, and it's not happening. Nobody's coming up with these, these um, influential, interesting, exciting new ideas, and nobody seems to be willing to put their money where their mouth is and, and uh, you know, say, we're doing this and putting all the effort into it to try to make it work and realizing, of course, that probably two-thirds of these kind of ideas will fail. Well, well, can't... Uh, but but in, if we're going to if we're going to uh, proceed, the, somebody's got to try them, you know. Right. Um, uh, one of my biggest disappointments with the LDSBA is the, that in the 10 years that I've been going to the LDSBA, I have yet to see a single effort that the organization has been made to expand the LDS market. Yeah, they hold their their conventions and everything, but in terms of actually getting new stores started or figuring out ways to get books sold in other languages and everything, they don't do squat. Right. They don't do anything. Well, Kent Larson, maybe this, uh, the the glimmer of hope in all this is that we have a new generation of internet-savvy Mormons who are listening to this podcast, and what this can represent to them is a challenge to band together, to collaborate to unify and to figure out a way to tackle this very important problem. I think you've done a great job of laying out why this is important, what the risks and challenges are, and what needs to be done. And I Thank think, you. And uh, I would invite anybody that's got those into ideas or wants me to help them with ideas or wants me to give them ideas that they can approach or ways of doing these things to contact me because I'm more than happy to to uh, you know to discuss this and and work with people to to get some of this uh, stuff happening to expand the market to uh, and to make Mormon culture a vital part of 
um, Mormons' lives around the world and not just in the near Mountain West. Yes. And and remind our listeners two things, how they can contact you, but more broadly, what are the blogs or Yahoo groups that people can join to plug into this very important conversation? Well, I don't know that there's lots of uh, places where you can do it. Um, MotleyVision.org is certainly one of the places. Um, I'm very active there, and I invite everyone to, to correspond with me there. That's probably through this, for this particular kind of thing, the best place to to contact me, so it would simply be Kent at MotleyVision.org. Um, also, if they join the uh, Association for Mormon Letters, that's a, a wonderful place for going over a lot of these uh, issues. There's a lot of ears there that are interested in seeing this kind of expansion and uh, in um, in Mormon letters. And um, I've, you know. If they'll watch MotleyVision.org, I have a, one or two ideas that I'll probably announce there to try to get uh, some something happen in Spanish and Portuguese, and I'd love to see a few people come and help us there. And there's also the Mormon Library Yahoo group, right? The Mormon Library Yahoo group is another one. Uh, it tends to be more for uh, books about history and more for book dealers than for new books. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a great group of people, and, and a lot of these ideas would be very relevant there. Well, Kent Larson, I, I just want you to know that that I believe that what you're saying and, and what you're communicating is extremely important, and I want to thank you for being willing to come on the show and, and talk to our uh, Mormon brothers and sisters to help move the bar a little bit in this regard. So thank you. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the forum. I appreciate what you're doing with Mormon Stories, and I look forward to uh, seeing uh, many more years of this kind of, uh, of reporting and promotion of, of ideas about Mormonism. I appreciate you what you're doing. Thank you. All right. Once again, uh, listeners, it's, uh, thank Kent Larson for coming on. If you want to check out uh, his website, once again, it's mormonpavilion.com or uh, motleyvision.org. Is that right? That's right. All right. You guys, uh, thanks a lot. Thanks again, Kent. Thank you. This program has been a production of Mormon Stories Podcast. To comment on this episode or to peruse the archive of past episodes, please visit us online at mormonstories.org. Also, please consider supporting Mormon Stories Podcast by making a contribution today.